Who is the greatest teacher of all time? We all know the answer to that question, right? I mean, after all, we're in church. The answer's got to be Jesus. Now, I know that some people might not agree. However, I think that's not just the in-church answer. I think Jesus is, in fact, the greatest teacher to have ever lived. He is the master teacher. And this sermon that we're going to be studying for the next month is a demonstration of His mastery of the art of teaching. And I want us to examine it for just a few moments tonight, looking at Jesus as the master teacher and what He demonstrates for us in that realm of teaching. Now, no doubt, there are some people who, looking at the sermon, would say that Jesus is the master teacher because as this sermon is recorded, it takes less than 15 minutes to preach. But I think that we can find some more substantive reasons to claim that Jesus is our greatest example in teaching. And as we look at this tonight, we're not just wanting to find out more about Jesus, but we'll remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer said, For by this time you ought to be teachers. What he demonstrated is the natural progression for all Christians is for us to grow to a point of being able to teach. If we want to be able to teach, it stands to reason that we ought to spend some time looking at the master teacher, following his example, looking at the things that he did in order to teach his gospel of the kingdom. And when we follow in his footsteps, we will become better teachers as well. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Before we do, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful that you sent your Son to die for us, that his blood might wash our sins away. We're thankful for the example that He has set for us about how to live as Your children, how to be holy as You are holy. And tonight, we're thankful for His example in teaching. We're thankful for what He taught. And we're thankful that You've given us the opportunity to study it. We're thankful for the model that He has bestowed for us. And we pray that You would help us to apply it to our own lives as we would be teachers in this world. Help us to remember that our job is to teach. It's to plant and water the seed. Your job is to provide the increase. Help us to remember that we're successful when we've taught as Jesus taught and help us to be busy teaching that gospel. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. The very first thing when we consider Jesus as a master teacher is going to be just a, a very pragmatic and practical look at the methods by which he taught. And one of the things that we notice is that Jesus had a variety of methods of teaching. He had mastered teaching with various techniques. There are a lot of people that you hear them preach, and it doesn't matter what lesson they're preaching, it just always sounds like the same lesson, no matter what the topic is. They just have the same format over and over and over and over again. But Jesus had mastered a variety of methods or techniques in teaching. And the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates many of them. And just briefly, let's just look at a few of them. The one he's probably most well known for is, of course, parables. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with a parable in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we know the story of the two builders, the wise and the foolish builder. We talked about it this morning. This story, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, providing just a very simple look at something that everybody understands in order to help them grasp something spiritual that might be a little more complex. As we look at these methods, think about how we could use these kinds of things in our teaching as well. Isn't storytelling a great method of teaching? And Jesus used it very well. 
but he also used aphorisms. We move from the end of the Sermon on the Mount to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. An aphorism is just a terse statement of truth, a very brief summary of a profound teaching. And he used this over and over again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as he continued that model there for those next nine statements, he hammered home the concept of blessing and joy. Not all things can be said so briefly. But boy, when we can come up with those great little terse, powerful statements, those aphorisms, they're a great way of teaching. They provide something that makes it easier to remember as we look at those first few statements. We may not remember everything about it, but we can, we can hear that formula, that rhythm of those aphorisms there. But he continued with other issues of teaching, illustrations. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. But he didn't just teach that generic principle. He then provided three illustrations of practicing your righteousness in secret. He talked about praying and how the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrites would stand on the in the synagogues and on the street corners. He said, we're supposed to go into our closet. The almsgiving, giving to the poor. He said, instead of sounding a trumpet, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then in verse 16, he talked about fasting. Instead of making ourselves look sick and, and how awful it is because we're not eating today, he said, just make it look like a normal day. He provided illustrations. And we need to remember that when we're teaching. Not just to give the doctrine, but to give the illustration that supports and sheds light upon what it is that we're teaching. He also refuted error. The largest section within the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5, verse 21 through 48. And repeatedly he said, You have heard this said, but I say to you. He stated the error and then he corrected it. Now, we're told today that we shouldn't do that because, well, that just sounds a little too judgmental. We shouldn't tell the error. We shouldn't say that what somebody else is teaching is error and then correct it. But that is exactly what Jesus did. He said, this is what you've heard. This is the truth. And we ought to be willing to do that. Willing to stand out and say, well, hey, we know this is taught, but it's just not right. Here's what the Bible says. Then we recognize that he used models. He modeled things. He didn't just teach on things. He said, do it like this. It's one thing to say that you ought to pray. It's another thing to talk about how you should pray, but it's an altogether different thing to say, when you pray, do it like this. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, that's what he said. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He provided a model so that we could follow and we can look exactly at what he did. In reality, what we're saying about the Sermon on the Mount is that in and of itself, it is a model, a model of teaching. And as we consider these various methods and techniques that he used, we, we see his mastery of the language and ability to communicate and persuade. And what a powerful master of teaching he was. But he also used figures of speech, demonstrating a great grasp of how to use language to convey his meaning and his message. We could see all kinds 
of figures of speech. In Matthew 5, 4, there's a paradox as he says, blessed are those who mourn, or happy are the sad. That'll stop you in, in your tracks and cause you to study and think about it. We also see metaphor in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Those are metaphors. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, he used hyperbole or exaggeration when he pointed out that if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. Or if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I'm sure we could find all manner of figures of speech and figurative language throughout the sermon and throughout Jesus' teaching. But he employed those things. And those are important. Figures of speech and figurative language are designed to cause us to, to stop in our tracks. They're kind of like speed bumps in the teaching. They cause us to stop and say, what on earth does this mean? Cut my hand off and throw it from me? i got to think about that. What is Jesus trying to say? And that's exactly what those are used for. And we need to learn how to employ that method of teaching, mastering that, using it properly to get across the point. He also used comparison and contrast. The greatest example of that in the sermon is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there are two ways, a narrow way and a broad way, a way which leads to destruction and a way that leads to life. He compared and contrasted those things so that we could see which one we really wanted to be a part of. He also warned... We're afraid to warn today, but Jesus warned. In Matthew 6, 1, we've already read it, what did He say? Beware of practicing your righteousness to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He warned in Matthew five nineteen that whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom. In Matthew 5.20, he warned, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. All of these are warnings. We're told today that we shouldn't do much warning because that's judgmental. And yet, when we know the Word of God, we need to warn folks when they're not following the Word of God. That's what Jesus did. That's how He taught. We need to teach in the same manner. He was not shy to teach the hard teachings. Jesus said some hard things in this sermon. And he didn't back off and say, oh, man, I don't want to say that. Nobody wants to hear that. He didn't say, oh, people aren't going to understand that. I guess I shouldn't say that. He didn't say, oh, people aren't going to like it. They're not going to want to follow it. They won't listen to me if I go ahead and teach that. He taught the hard teachings. What about those hard teachings toward the end of Matthew 5 and verse 39? He said, I say to you, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. But can it get any harder than what comes next? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those are hard things. They're hard things, not because they're hard to understand necessarily, but because they're hard to implement. And hard because they go against what we really want to do. But Jesus didn't shy away from that. He used that. He taught those things. And the last example that I want to give you is, well, just flat out pragmatism. Rules of thumb. We talked about it this morning in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. 
as he summarized everything about the sermon really in one statement, pointing out that however you want to be treated is how you should treat others. He said, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, there's no doubt that that statement doesn't give us all the ins and outs of Christian character. There's no doubt that it doesn't give us every single detail about how we're supposed to live, but it provides that pragmatic, practical rule of thumb that says, here's how you should live. Here's your takeaway. And whenever we teach, we have got to give that. We've got to give the practical, here's what you do. Here's how you take this into your life. It's great to talk about all the teachings of Christ. It's great to talk about how we're supposed to live. But in the end, we've got to talk about where the rubber hits the road. We've got to talk about where the preaching meets the practice. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He was willing to use these. He was a master teacher. Look, look at the arsenal that he had. All the arrows of teaching that he had in his quiver. If we're going to be great teachers, we, can, we need to learn to use these types of methods. But I will tell you that I really believe that this is the least of the issues of Jesus' teaching that demonstrates him to be the master teacher. He was masterful at these things. And we need to follow his example. But his mastery of various methods was the smallest of the issues that make him the greatest teacher to have ever lived. When we consider his teaching, I think the second thing that makes him the greatest teacher is that he provoked thought and questions. Now, normally when we talk about great teachers, we'll say, oh, they're the ones that make the complex very simple. If that's your standard of what makes a great teacher, I would not be surprised if you said that you didn't think Jesus was the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth because that's just not what Jesus did most of the time. What we most often want for teachers to do is to take the extremely complex and the extremely difficult and to devour those things, digest them, and spit out little bite-sized digestible chunks that we have an easy time with. What we want teachers to do is to give us the pat answers to all the questions we might possibly generate. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, when we look at the sermon, that is not what Jesus did. In the sermon, I think we might often say that Jesus raises more questions than He sometimes answers. Almost every step of the way in the sermon, we're forced to ask more. What does He mean by this? How could He say this? We're forced to dig deeper within the Word of God. The great thing about the sermon is as we study it and study it deeply, it's going to send us all over the New Testament trying to figure out exactly what Jesus meant and what that teaching means for us. Just think about some of the questions. We start off at the very beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And all these blessings and these beatitudes, and immediately we ask the question, well, who is, is this for everybody? Are all Christians supposed to be like this, or is this just the, the special few Christians who have attained these types of characteristics? We have to study that. We might ask, well, is this spiritual stuff, or is it talking about material things? What does it mean to be gentle? What does meekness mean? And if you don't think that's a hard question, just start reading some of the commentaries as they try to answer it. What is mercy? Pure in heart, what does that mean? All these questions that we have to ask, because he just says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's it mean to be pure in heart? He didn't say, I've got to study some more someplace else to find that out. You want to talk about a section that causes questions. That one we read moment ago, moments ago in verse chapter 5, beginning of verse 39. I say to you, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. 
do we have to sit there and submit to being beaten? Are we ever allowed any manner of self-defense? What about military service? All of these questions come up, and Jesus doesn't answer all these questions here. If we want to answer them, we have to dig and study. See, the reality is, it is not great teaching to digest all the hard stuff and just give out pat answers. Because when that's what the teacher does, we usually don't really learn. That's when we hear a sermon and a lesson say, oh, boy, that makes sense, I'll remember that. And the next time somebody asks us a question, we have to call the preacher again. Now, what was it that you said? You ever done that? Oh, I've got the answer now, but then just two days later, somebody asked you the question you couldn't remember. Why? Because we really didn't learn it. Thought hadn't been provoked. Somebody just gave us an answer that we thought we would regurgitate the next time somebody asked the same question. Learning occurs when we're challenged. Learning occurs when we have to think. Learning occurs when we have to dig on our own. I'll tell you, just on the pragmatic life within our families, I think this is one of the reasons so many children grow up and fall away. Because as adults and parents, we rarely force our children to go through the same thought processes that we went through to get where we are. We just gave them all the answers. And they never learned. They were building a house on a foundation of sand like we talked about this morning. If we want folks to learn, if we want to be great teachers, we have to be like Jesus. We have to give the thought-provoking study-inducing, question-inspiring teaching that causes us to get into the Word of God and dig and study and learn. Now, there's something about this that we're going to have to realize then about us as learners. Learning from Jesus takes work. Because Jesus doesn't just give us the pat answers. Jesus was a great teacher because He provokes question and thought and challenges us to get into the Word to figure out what it says. It's not going to be easy studying the Sermon on the Mount because learning from Jesus takes work. But that's the sign of a great teacher. Somebody who makes us work so that we can learn. Another reason Jesus was a master teacher is because He taught with authority. Look at the follow-up verses to the sermon in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. Now, if He had just stopped there, this statement wouldn't shock me that much. Because He said some pretty amazing things. If He had just said they were amazed at His teaching, I'd have said, yeah, no kidding. But that's not where He stopped. He said, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What Matthew pointed out is that they were actually more amazed at how he taught, not at what he taught. That's surprising to me, because he said some pretty amazing and shocking things. But they were more amazed at how, because he taught with authority. So not like one of their scribes. We're told that the scribes, the way they would teach, when we look at their writings, is instead of saying anything with real conviction and authority, they would hedge and they would hem and haw and they would demonstrate all the support. The majority of the scholars and the ancients would say, in fact, that's 
That's kind of Jesus' model throughout that one section in chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told. So you've been taught by the scribes and Pharisees, look at this long list of scholars throughout the ages and all that they have said about the law. You have heard that the ancients were told. Jesus said, but I say to you. Jesus didn't give all the support from everybody else who agreed with Him. He said, I say to you. Fourteen times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus' words were not truth because Moses agreed with Him. Jesus' words were not truth because the prophets supported Him. Jesus' words were not truth because the sum total of the majority of scholarship throughout the ages also said what Jesus said. Jesus' words were truth because He was Jesus. The King of the Jews. God in the flesh. He said, I say to you. He taught with authority. He didn't hedge. He didn't buffer. He didn't say, well, maybe. He said, I say to you. Teaching with authority. Now, we're told today that we shouldn't teach with that authority. We're told that we really need to back up and let everybody know, hey, you know, this is just my opinion. You know, really, everybody's just allowed to believe what they want, but would you possibly consider this possibility? I could be wrong, but maybe this is the way it is. No conviction, no authority. That's not how Jesus taught. Now, having said that, I realize full well, I am not Jesus. I was waiting for somebody to amen that one. And you're not Jesus. And therefore, in truth, we cannot teach with the same kind of authority that Jesus taught with. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 is just very clear. Jesus said to His disciples, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. And we don't have that. There's no authority left over for us. But we also remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, Peter said, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Your translation may say, whoever speaks is to speak as the oracles of God. Now, what that demonstrates is that if we're standing on the shaky ground of our speculation, we shouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to speak with conviction and authority. But when we are speaking the Word of God, we don't need to hedge. We don't need to hem and haw. We don't need to just kind of dance around and maybe if possibly it could be. We need to say, this is what God's Word says. And you know what? If we can say, look at this verse... We can say it with authority. Not our authority, but Jesus' authority. Because we're not saying our own words, we're saying Jesus' words. We don't need the sum total of scholarship. We don't need to have agreement among the commentators. All we need is the Word of Jesus Christ. And if we have that, then we need to speak as the utterances of God with conviction, not meanly, but with conviction, with boldness. That's how Jesus taught. It made Him the master teacher. Jesus also lived what He taught. Have you ever heard anyone say, do as I do, not as I say? 
I don't know who the first person was that came up with that stupid statement. Because that's just ridiculous. Do as I do, not as I say. Now, there might be a place when we're trying to demonstrate that we're imperfect, but what we thought was right, and we don't always measure up to it, but we're really trying. But in general, in general, that statement is a formula for telling people, don't listen to me. Because if what I'm saying is not important enough for me to do, why would it be important enough for you to do it? In Matthew chapter 23... Jesus taught that about the Pharisees. He said in Matthew chapter 23, beginning of verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So now do that with the Pharisees. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. When they're sitting in the seat of Moses and teaching the things that Moses taught, you do what they say, but don't do what they do, because they're not going to do it. But Jesus never lived by that. Think about this sermon. Every step of the way in this sermon, who most exemplifies what Jesus taught? The Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit. They're not because of his sins, as we have to be poor in spirit. Mourning. But over our sins and not his own. Gentle. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, persecuted. Who exemplifies those things more than Jesus did? The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Jesus was not just a light of the world as we are. He was the light of the world. If you want to think about how Jesus exemplified what he taught, think about that difficult passage that we've honed in on over and over again. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Jesus gave his cheek to the smiters and his back to the scourge. Whoever sues you to take your shirt, give him your coat also. They stripped him of all his garments and cast lots for them. Keep in mind, he could have stopped it. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. As he walked the entire journey to Mount Calvary, give to him who asks you. As he gives his grace to each and every one of us that submit to him and ask him for it. Who did those things more than Jesus? And then what about that love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Can we possibly get out of our mind's eye Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus lived what He taught. And because of that, He's the greatest teacher that ever lived. Do we live what we teach? We want to be effective. We have to practice what we preach. But there's one more key to Jesus' teaching. And this is the number one. I've saved it for last. It is the number one. It's the easiest to demonstrate. It's the shortest. It's the briefest that we'll talk about because it's just so easy to notice. But it is the number one thing that made Jesus the greatest teacher of all times. 
It's the fact that Jesus taught only what the Father wanted. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus says, that's what all this has been about. It's been about doing the will of My Father. Some folks have said, hey, just don't commit murder, but you can hate everybody. But that's not the will of My Father. That's what He's pointing out there. Some folks have said, you can lust all you want, but as long as you don't commit adultery. Jesus said, that's not the will of My Father. Jesus is a master teacher because He taught only what the Father wanted. In John chapter 7, and verse 16. John chapter 7 and verse 16. Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. In John chapter 14 and verse 10. John chapter 14 and verse 10. Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Jesus taught only what the Father wanted. He taught the words of the Father, nothing more and nothing less. And if we want to be great teachers, that's what we must do. Going only to the Word and teaching what God has revealed. Nothing more, nothing less. That is why Jesus was the master teacher. Because nobody has perfectly accomplished that like He did. But that's what we must be working for. Jesus is the master teacher. He's the greatest teacher that ever lived. He mastered the various methods. He provoked thought and questions. He challenged us. He taught with authority. He lived what He taught. And He taught only what the Father wanted. Do we want to be teachers? Of course we do. Do we want to get better at teaching? Then let's take a look at how Jesus taught and teach like He did. Let's look at how Jesus lived and lived like He did. And we'll be better teachers. The greatest class in teaching that we can ever take is the one taught by Jesus Himself in the Gospels.